Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 5, and you follow in your copies of that which we know to be inerrant and inspired and infallible, the very mind of God as black words on a white page. You follow uh, in Matthew chapter 5. I'll read four verses to you, beginning at verse 17. Matthew chapter 5 at verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The grass withers, and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. Some of you know, um, at least if you've been around on Wednesday night, some of you who are know that I have struck up recently a a relationship with uh, the rabbi at Temple Israel here in Memphis. He's a fascinating, a delightful fellow, and I've enjoyed our meetings, I've enjoyed our conversations, and I've learned a lot. One of the things that, uh, that he mentioned as one, and there it's only one, of the offenses that Judaism has with Gentile Christianity is that Judaism feels that we have co-opted their Jesus. And we have. Now, um, by my saying that, don't hear me saying that they treasure Jesus. They don't. And they will tell you that uh, rather readily. But the point that they're making is that Jesus was first a Jew. Now, I, I disagree with that word first. That is, that he was first a Jew. But... um the point is true that he was a Jew. He um, he had a Jewish mother. He dressed like a Jew. He, uh, he ate like a Jew. And Judaism insists that we can no, no more understand Jesus Christ apart from his Jewishness than we can understand Gandhi apart from his Indianness. And, and I think that's a point well made. Um, and I'm sure it'd be quite profitable to try and study um, his Jewishness. It, it, it may help tremendously. At least that's their suggestion. But I think in our text, guys, Jesus makes something else a certainty. 
makes very clear that you will never understand Jesus Christ apart from Old Testament law. Which would include all of those dietary laws and those uh, ceremonial laws and ritual laws and moral laws, the whole enchilada. You're not going to understand, very frankly, guys, you're not going to understand the gospel, the message of salvation. You're not going to understand that apart from Jesus' relationship to law. I read an article this week, um, and, I, and I forget where it came from. It, it seems like it might have come from the Atlanta Constitution, the paper from Atlanta, but it might be the New York Times. But it was about a preacher who had be- has become quite a celebrity. And uh, he had been asked to speak in Atlanta and uh, packed the place out. In fact, part of the article said that there was a woman, a, a young a college student who had driven up from Auburn, Alabama, um, because she wanted to hear this guy speak. And uh, she couldn't get in because it was sold out. I mean, you had to buy tickets to get in there. And this 1,700-seat auditorium, which is bigger than this one, um, was sold out, completely sold out. And um, she couldn't get in. She'd driven all the way up, and she couldn't get in. And then the article went on to say that one of the reasons that this particular preacher has become quite hip, I guess, is because of a question that he poses to his audiences. Here's the question. Is the virgin birth really necessary? (laughs) Yeah, it is. Everything that is revealed about Jesus Christ in this book... Is necessary. And it just shows the state of the church that that's the way that you get a following. Is to call into question things that are vital to the importance of understanding who Jesus Christ is. I am suggesting, guys, that if we are going to understand the one who is at the center of Christianity, the star of the show, We've got to understand his relationship to law. Old Testament law. Now, guys, before you shut down and start working on your Christmas list, uh, because you're, uh, you're thinking, what could this possibly have to do with me? I mean, I'm just trying to cope with life and all of its challenges and eat up the, talking about Jesus and the law. I mean, come on, Dr. Young, could you not give us something practical? Oh, my dear friends, I want to suggest to you that some of the deepest struggles that you and I have inwardly, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually come because we do not understand a Christian's relationship to law. So, I'm I'm pleading with you, if you'll stay with me uh, and stay awake through this, you, you you might just be surprised with some little nugget of delight tucked in all of what I'm about to say. No, no, I won't be telling you uh, how to better operate your Dell computer or how to invest your money 
And neither am I going to discuss how to improve your marriage or how to raise your kids. But I will be telling you how to speak peace to a troubled conscience. I'll also be telling you how you can express love for a God who saved you. Let me, let me, um, let me, let me state that a different way, less delicately. Gang, does death scare you? If you say it doesn't, you'd probably lie about other things too, but, um, I, I'm not suggesting that I can eliminate all of that fear. But I do want to suggest that we can lessen it considerably. Now, how's that for practical? So stay with me. Point one. To understand my relationship, the Christian's relationship to law, I've got to understand his, Christ's, relationship to law. And in our text, Jesus makes two huge, sweeping claims, statements. The the first claim that he makes, or the first statement that he makes, is that everything that he teaches and does is in absolute harmony with the entire teaching of the Old Testament. The second thing that he says in this, this little brief paragraph is that everything that I teach and do is in complete disharmony with and in utter contradiction to the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, gang, there's our first hint. What I mean by that is this. There, there is a good and there is a bad. There is a, there is a positive and there is a negative of the law. There is, there is a right use of the law and a wrong use of the law for the Christian. Now, let's see if we can sort that all out. That's what I'm hoping to do today. <laughs> Look at the text, guys. Um, first of all, verse 17. Um, when Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Gang, that, that phrase, the law or the prophets, is a Hebrew idiom. And it simply refers to, um, to the entire Old Testament. When you wanted to talk about the Old Testament, you said the law and the prophets. That's, it was just a Hebrew idiom. So he says, we do not think that I have come to abolish the Old Testament. No, I didn't come to abolish it. And here's the key word in the text, guys. Key. It is the word fulfill. I've not come to abolish, but I have come to fulfill. Later on, he uses the word accomplished. Some of your translations might might use the word accomplished. But I have come to fulfill it. By that I mean, or he means he's come to carry it out or to give full obedience to it. Later on, about 40 years later, the Apostle Paul would put it like this. Paul in Romans 10.4. Romans 10.4 he says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. All of the law and prophets, or all of the Old Testament, with all of its stipulations, 
down to the minutest detail has been fulfilled, carried out, obeyed by Christ, accomplished by Christ. And ladies and gentlemen, that is an unbelievable claim. Because he has, because Christ has fulfilled the Old Testament, it has come to an end. That's the language that the Apostle Paul uses. Christ is the end of the law. He is an end of the law as a means of saving anyone. He's carried out the law fully. He has submitted himself to it absolutely, both negatively and positively, both both actively and passively. Not one jot or tittle, that's the language that we're familiar with, that's the old King James language, not one jot or tittle, and the language here is not an iota, not a dot, has been neglected or forgotten. So... For anyone to suggest that my eternal well-being is dependent upon my keeping of the law. Oh, my friends, it is just full of error. First of all, I can't fulfill the law. I don't. I haven't. Secondly, part of the error is that it is promoting a, a, a self-salvation Thirdly, it is to suggest that there is some kind of flaw in Jesus' obedience. I didn't come to abolish it, says Jesus. I came to fulfill it. And then Paul tells us later, he did it. He came to fulfill it, and he did. And the law, he is, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Now, gang, it's at this point in our discussion that that part of the confusion sets in. Does his fulfilling the law now mean that I, the Christian, can can throw the thing away and dispense with it entirely? Gang, if his role was to fulfill it, if he's the end of it, then is there any role for it at all in the Christian's life? Guys, you've got to get this straight. You've got to get this straight. Uh, or you're going to be unnecessarily troubled or discomfited. However, n- not only are you going to be uncomfortable... But you're going to be unclear for the rest of your life about the gospel. So, stay with me. Okay. First, in one real sense, the law is a dead issue for you if you're a Christian. It is satisfied. Its stipulations are met. Its punishments have been inflicted upon Christ. As far as an instrument of your salvation or or even something that demands that you be punished, 
It is a dead issue. Okay. Uh, have you got that? Then, friend, speak peace to your own soul and say to it that the law cannot and will not condemn you. But, but this is how our minds work. They do something like this, some, some version of this. They say, uh, well, yeah, I, I'm a Christian, but, but my parents taught me the Ten Commandments. Yes, they did. And, and, and I, I, I know I haven't kept them. And worse than that, uh, I, there's a whole lot of other stuff in there that I haven't kept either. And I've even done some stuff that, uh, you know, that I know uh, God doesn't approve of. And so when I die, I'm afraid that God's going to take all of those rules of his and he's going to cram them down my throat saying, surely you didn't expect me to ignore all that, did you? Or maybe maybe this is more like you. Um, uh, Up in heaven, there is this giant computer. And it keeps a record of everything that I've ever done, every, every detail of my life. And when I die, God's going to go over to that computer and Google my name. And um, there it is. It's going to be right there on the screen. And then he's going to hit the print button. And that printer is going to be spitting out all of this stuff about my life. And, and his law is going to cast this big, dark Deep shadow over everything that's coming out of that printer. And I'm going to be in big trouble. No. A thousand times no. My dear friend, can you say the word fulfilled? Can you say that? Because, ladies and gentlemen, it will serve you well. Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. Every demand that the law has ever made on you has been fulfilled by Christ. For you. And when my conscience begins to rise up and condemn me, and it will. Because you know what you did last week. Then I say to my own conscience. Fulfilled. Get down, leave me alone. I point to this Christ and I point to this statement when he says it's fulfilled. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. However, as a Christian... The law is a wonderful tool. 
of directing me in some very clear ways as to what God is like and how I can express my love for Him and how I can reflect His beauty in a dark world. For example, you love this God, do you? And you want to, you want to express your love for Him. Here's a way you can do it. Tell the truth. Well, how do you know that, Dr. Young? Well, because the ninth commandment says, do not bear false witness. You want to reflect the beauty of God to a disintegrating culture? Tell the truth. Wouldn't that be refreshing? Or how about this? You want to express love for this God? Then view life as sacred. Well, how do you know that, Dr. Young? I mean, where'd you get that from? Well, because the sixth commandment says, Thou shalt do no murder. So all of life is to be preserved and protected. And that's why the Christian who loves this book and loves this God is such an opponent of abortion. How about this one? You want to love this God? You want to you want to express your love for Him? Then make Him the highest priority in your life. Well, how did you come up with that, Dr. Young? Well, because the first commandment says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Not your career. Not your kids. Not your reputation. Make this God the highest priority in your life. Gang, Jesus Christ was careful to observe the law in its entirety down to the minutest detail and then turns around and taught us to love the law as as he explained it. And then he says in verse 19, therefore... Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Is that clear? I hope. (laughs) I'm really trying. Guys, Jesus is an end of the law for righteousness. But we don't throw the thing away. Right, let me do it again. Let me let me let me start over and because this you've got to get this straight, guys, for your own peace of heart. The life of Jesus Christ was a rigorous project of obeying and meeting every stipulation of the law. For me, he was even born under the law, says Galatians four four. You know, he went out and got circumcised on the on the eighth day. He was he was obeying every stipulation of the law, guys. Understanding the Gospel must come only in terms of the law. All of his life, he was living a life that I should have lived. What was happening on the cross as he was dying was that he was enduring 
in his own body the penalty prescribed for law-breaking in my place. So his life was lived in my place, and his death was died in my place. My friend, your salvation does not depend on your keeping any of it. Because it was kept for you. And as my Savior, I get credit for what He did. His righteousness becomes mine. And thus, He then says in verse 20, For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And mine does. Because he gave me his. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now. Got that? Once these redeemed people have laid hold of this Christ... How do we display our love for him? By obedience. If you love me, keep my commandments. You know who said that? (laughs) He did. Guys, I am not released from the law as a rule of life. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. But he's not an end so that we can throw it away. Law is not opposed to grace. In fact, in one sense, the whole purpose of grace is to enable me to keep the law. Now, let me set before you the two options that all men have. Whether they're Hindu, Jewish, Muslim, there's two options. If you do not avail yourself of what is offered in the Lord Jesus, you will be condemned. Not by Christ, but by the law. Because the law demands that you keep it Perfectly. And you haven't. You don't. And you cannot. And you're trying to save yourself. And you will fail. Here's the other option. For all those who embrace this Christ and yield his lordship, he makes us sons of God. People who delight in the law of God, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who, who long to be holy and strive by the power of the Holy Spirit to live like him in every respect, while at the same time we rest. In the finished work of Jesus Christ. 
That's your other option. Now let me close like this. Um, a few minutes ago, I referenced Romans 10.4. I said that uh, Paul says that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I taught that on a Wednesday night, the last Wednesday night we were together. And um, when Paul says that, he's in the midst of a discussion about his countrymen, about his Jewish countrymen. And he says in a, the verse earlier, just verse 3 instead of verse three or 4, he says that they're confused. And here's what he says. For being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Being ignorant of the law and its purposes. They sought to establish a righteousness on their own. And they did not yield, they did not surrender to a righteousness provided by Christ. If you're not a Christian this morning, you're doing exactly the same thing. Romans 10.3 describes what you're doing. Being ignorant of the law, you try to provide one yourself and refuse to yield, to surrender to a God-provided righteousness. Let me tell you this story and I'm done. I, I told this on a Wednesday night and... They seem to like it. I'll tell it and see if it's, hopefully it's helpful for you. I've become quite um, interested in World War II of late, and I even met right after right after Veterans Day on a on a Monday morning. I worked out at the Germantown Community Center, and and I ran into a man who is 88 years old, and his name is Jake, and he's my hero. Jake's my hero. He um, he was a tanker. That is, he. I don't know whether he fired the gun or he drove the tank, <clears throat> but he was in a tank. He first landed at, uh, in North Africa and fought Rommel. He was then placed in um, Sicily and fought at the Battle of Palermo. Then they took him to Italy and he, he, he fought in Anzio. Then they took him out of the European theater, took him to England, and he rested for three months, four months. Then they inserted him at Normandy. And he went all the way to Berlin. That's the whole war. I mean, Jake was in the whole war. But anyway, that, he, he didn't tell me this story. Um, uh, Stephen Ambrose told me this story in, in his book, Citizen Soldier. But uh, what, what, what Ambrose described is that during the last weeks preceding uh, Germany's surrender uh, of World War II, tens of thousands of German soldiers were either captured or surrendered. And that when they were, when they surrendered or were captured, they were, they were thrilled. They were absolutely delighted with the relief over having been captured. One of those captives was a uh, Corporal Frederick Burtonroth of the 2nd Panzer Division. And, um, he had also fought on the Eastern Front against the Russians. Then he had been taken out of that front and brought over to the Western Front at Normandy to fight against the, the, um, the oncoming allies. And this corporal says this, and I'm quoting. He says, 
In Russia, I could imagine nothing but fighting to the last man. We knew that going into a prison camp in Russia meant you were dead. In Normandy, one always had in the back of his mind, well, if everything goes to hell, the Americans are human enough that the prospect of becoming their prisoner was to some extent attractive. Some of the captives that were captured uh, in that, that period of the war, they would come out with no weapons with their hands held up and they, would, they were saying, we want to go to America. <laughs> well, um, so did the American soldiers want to go to America, but the war wasn't quite over by then. But guys, in that period, in April, the surrender came in early May of 1945. In April of 1945, th- those battered remnants of Germany's vaunted military machine had been trapped in Berlin. Their, their earlier invasion into the Soviet Union had, had taken more than three million Soviet lives. And so now, towards the end of the war, after, of course, that campaign had failed, and, and because of the bloodletting of the Germans in the Soviet Union, the, the, the Soviets were now knocking on Berlin's door, and they had an insatiable appetite for revenge. And now, as the Third Reich teetered on, on, on the brink of collapse... 2.5 million Soviet troops were advancing against Berlin on three fronts. And they were moving fast. And a wave of panic swept through Berlin, both soldiers and citizens. So the Nazis knew that the Western Allies, under the command of General Eisenhower, had been moving towards Berlin, but had stopped short just on the other side of the Elbe River. That's right outside of Berlin, the Elbe River. That was because there was an agreement had been made at the Potsdam Conference between Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill. That the Allies were to stop at the Elbe River and the Soviets were going to take Berlin. Now, as the Soviet troops blasted the city of Berlin with the heaviest bombardment in the history of warfare, German troops and citizens launched this this desperate bid to break through Soviet lines and get to the Americans so that they could surrender. The Germans finally understood that they were finished as a fighting force Surrender was inevitable. The only question that remained was this. To whom will we surrender? The Russians? Or the Americans? Ladies and gentlemen, Every person in this room is facing the same choice. Not the same. A similar choice. You have one of two options. To whom will you surrender?
Will you surrender to a God-provided righteousness that has completed and perfected the law and has thus become an end of righteousness? An end of a means to righteousness? Or will you continue to surrender to your own self-salvation strategy? One is attractive. The other will damn you. Our Father, I pray that that has been clear. And where I have muddied the waters, I pray that you will insert such clarity that I could not produce. But I pray, O God, that men and women that hear this will at least know that there is a God-provided righteousness because Jesus came to fulfill the law and, and succeeded. And then there is another Another myth, another dream about providing my own righteousness that is nothing but everlasting foolishness. Would you, would you make clear the beauty of what Christ has done and the insanity of trying to save oneself? Would you do that, Lord? Not because I can't. We all know I can't. We all know that you can. Would you do it for Jesus' sake? It's in his name we pray.